Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. Today, our guest is Matt Moore. He's an engineer with over 10 years of experience and co-hosts his own podcast, The Lambda Show, where he explores the world of functional programming. Fun little fact, at some point in time, Kamena, Matt, and I all worked for the same company. Without further ado, let's welcome Matt Moore. Hey, Matt, how's it going? It's going great, Jonathan. How are you doing? Good. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thanks for we having have, me. Oh, of course. And we also have Jimena here as well. Hi, Hello. I'm super excited. <laughs> me too. <laughs> so Matt, we've been uh, picking your brain about podcasting because you know we need to do this and you're much more experienced than us. And you've given us some great tips. And honestly, like starting this podcast was... Uh, a bit of a challenge, you know, what question do you ask? So I guess, you know, let's just kick it off with this question. What do you normally ask your like podcast guests? That is a great question. Um, so usually it depends on who I'm talking to, actually. Uh, if I'm going to, typically when I interview somebody on my podcast, like I have a, a really like deep dive on a specific topic that I want to do. And so uh, you know, I'll kind of kick off a lot of times with the question of how they got into that field themselves. Um, what, what drove their interest and all of that. Uh, so like one of the ones I did recently was about, uh, well, I've been doing a lot on functional programming lately and, uh, Jimena, you know, I'm, I'm big on that. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, it was just like a question of what got you into functional programming? Like, what is your background? What led you there? Um, those kinds of things. So that's just like one example of something I might do. Um, sometimes I also like to start it off with just like, a uh, an oddball question, like, where do you live and do you hate it there? It's <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Um, I think for my podcast, uh, something I like, cause I, I've seen a lot of other, something I actually liked about your podcast too, is you, you guys just sort of had a natural flowing conversation and that's great. I don't, I don't tend to listen as much to podcasts that are very sort of formal, you know, rigorous set of questions and answers. It feels like a job interview sort of. Um, and I just, you know, starting a conversation with people is, seems to be the best way to go. So it's something I've found useful. Uh, yeah. others, others, your mileage may vary, but. On that note, I know you are a big Haskell guy and we could like talk hours for Haskell and functional programming, or you could sit here and tell me all your, adventures but what got you into tech great question uh so i was uh doing programming going back now since i was about i think 11 is when i got started um before that i was really big into electronics I was the crazy kid, like soldering, you know, circuit boards and stuff like that. Like nothing else mattered to me. I was like, just, I got to do this. Okay. And I have to take a break and have breakfast. Now I'm back to this. <laughs> so I, I really got into the electronic stuff uh, for a while. Um, later on, I discovered computers and I was about 11 or 12, I think. And uh, I think it was uh, C and Perl were the two first languages that I discovered. Um, I did not know what I was doing. I just started <laughs> making text files and it's like, let me figure out the compiler and all this stuff. So, uh, a few years later, actually I, while I was in high school, uh, was able to put together a website for the company my dad worked for. And, uh, 
that was kind of fun. I did that in Pearl and started to realize I kind of really like this thing. So maybe I should do that for real. Um, and then I, you know, finally got into college. Uh, I was debating in college whether I wanted to go the software way or if I wanted to go more the hardware way. And one of my professors told me, stay away from hardware. There's no money in it in the U.S. I was like, all right, you just ruined my dream. <laughs> but it was pretty sound advice. And uh, so I did go the software route. Um, really enjoyed it. Uh, I try to tinker with hardware stuff off and on here and there. But uh, most of my tinkering these days has definitely been in software. Um, so that's kind of how I got started. I guess I was sort of made for this um, to a degree. Uh, just just really enjoyed it. And I'm, I was always one of those coders who did it for fun and like job was like an afterthought, um, which I know can be there. It's tough because like not everybody falls into that niche, right? Like some people do this because it makes uh, a decent living and that is a completely legitimate reason to do it. Um, you know, not every doctor goes into the medical field because they want to treat patients strictly for fun. So for some people it's a, it's a career move they need to make. And that's, that's awesome. Um, and which we, we can get into a little bit later, but some, some of the stigmas I've encountered at various angles around tech and the different reasons why people get into it that I think are terrible, uh, to, to do. Like, I think, I think people have their reasons for getting into tech. I had mine. Um, but every reason is, is, uh, legit and should be supported hundred uh, percent, including as a kind of a spinoff to that, uh, people who don't necessarily want to code on weekends or such, um, not forcing them to work more than 40 hours. I actually, by the way, don't think 40 hour work weeks are healthy for us. Um, I think we should be working our day jobs far less than that. Um, anyway, I'm getting way off topic here. So <laughs> yeah, these, these are all great points. I oh, kind of want to dive into so many different things here, I guess like, um, uh, Okay, I want to come back to what you think about 40-hour work weeks, but I kind of want to get your thoughts on hardware in the current state because, as we know, IoT is big these days. Um, you know, is there money in hardware? Is, is this like a legitimate career path these days? That is a great question. I actually uh, was recently approached by a company to do IoT. Uh, I have not had any professional experience in IoT. Um, and I actually told them that and I, you know, aside from the fact that I am happy where I'm at and I'm not looking to move on, but, uh, you know, it's, I was interested in the concept. And so started talking with them. Uh, I won't get into, I, I won't identify who they are by their line of business, but, <laughs> um, but it was an interesting concept, what they were trying to do. Uh, and they're actually based out of Chicago. Um, they're, they're around the country now. They've got a few other places going, but their, their main base is Chicago. So I would say on the hardware side, it, it's, it's such a broad field right now. There's so many things. I mean, you look at stuff that's going on with Intel, for example. AMD, you could throw in there as well. The typical like, you know, x86 uh, or 64-bit architecture, you know, uh, Intel or AMD processors that we're all familiar with. There's, there's limitations we're hitting there, right? Um, you can't make processors faster and faster anymore. Uh, we're sort of stuck. I mean, I remember what, 10 years ago, 
uh, earlier in my career. It's like every year there was another gigahertz that felt like added onto your CPU. And then you were just like, wow, this is amazing. Can you imagine in 20 years, we're going to have 50 gigahertz CPUs? Not going to happen. Um, and it's, you know, Intel, I mean, you guys, you know, already know all this and you sh you've seen the news and all that, but like Intel has come out and they've talked about like, we're running into physics limitations. There's thermal issues. You can't cram yet more and more transistors into a smaller space. You're sort of, you're sort of stuck there. Um, and so I think like their answer has been kind of interesting of like, let's make more cores. And that's kind of been the paradigm, which is interesting because it affects software engineers. Um, you can't just crank more workloads on the same CPU anymore. You now have to split out and do this multi-core paradigm, which is actually one of the reasons why I'm really into functional programming because it makes some of those things easier to handle. Um, so as far as, so that's kind of, I talked a little bit about CPU stuff, but hardware in general uh, is an area I've, I've been, like I say, sort of getting back into a little bit on the side. And in particular, I am interested in, uh, with IoT and things like that, specialty hardware devices. Um, I had a friend of mine, she was talking to me recently about like, hey, you know, what if we could like build holograms to like project people uh, in messages and stuff, kind of, you know, Star, uh, Star Wars uh, style. And I'm not an expert on holograms, but I have a sister who is. Uh, she studied them in college. She's a chemist. And, uh, you know, from the conversations I've had with her initially, it was like, well, I don't think you can make, I don't think you can make moving holograms. Like that might be a problem. But uh, yeah, maybe this is a completely impractical <laughs> type of thing to build. But it's like, hey, might be interesting to experiment with this. Uh, and that's a case where you'd have like an actual device that you could uh, have connected to the internet, do streaming, I mean, similar to like how your smart home devices work. And uh, that could be a product to solve some niche. Um, I don't know. I will say, while I love to tinker on that side, and I have an interest in the product side of how to merge technology together with everything, uh, I'm also not an expert on uh, business or the marketplace. So I, you know, that's for like, I have other people for that. So <laughs> they do that and I just build the tech. Um, but yeah, there's, there's a lot of hardware stuff around there that I'm, I'm interested in. And when I've been having some conversations with some other friends about like drone stuff, I recently got into mm -hmm. drones. And so uh, I think I, I got the uh, Mavic Air 2 recently. And it's been a lot of fun. Uh, it's been a, especially a lot of fun finding a place in Chicago area to fly it because they don't really exist. <laughs> really? Yeah. Huh. Uh, Chicago area is not very drone friendly and, and <laughs> kind of for good reasons, right? It's population is too dense to like have all these drones flying overhead and crashing into people. Um, obviously, there's like privacy concerns. Uh, you don't want, you know, all the obvious things that can come out of that. People like flying drones near windows and all. You should all close your windows at night, by the way. But anyway, uh, <laughs> so there's a lot of interesting questions around that. Um, but I like to take my drone out. Uh, you know, I go out to Michigan or something like that. And it's just wide open country and just uh, get some beautiful shots at sunset and whatnot. But yeah, like with drones, you've got interesting applications there. There's companies now that are doing things like, um, you know, taking like 3D surveys of uh, land to get like topographical maps and and uh, map out different locations and structures, which is kind of an interesting thing uh, I've been just recently kind of following along with. Um, so, and, and you can do stuff with drones where you have them connected together and do drone swarms and you can coordinate different activities and tasks like that. 
So I, I find all that stuff kind of, kind of interesting. Um, and I think from a business perspective, uh, for any software engineers who might be interested, anyone who's listening to this, if you want to combine your love of hardware with software, um, I think, I think as someone who is not a product person, but I think the answer to that is identify, definitely identify, it's your classic business uh, advice of identify a need that the market has, but I think some kind of a special, I really do think IoT connected device that solves a problem in a fundamentally different way than what current devices do, um, that the average person can use without any additional tinkering. I think this is the problem, right? You have a lot of these different devices people try to experiment with, prototypes companies make, mm -hmm. and it's like, okay, it takes me three hours to set it up and figure it out. Yeah, it's not gonna work for the average person. So um, yeah, anyway, there's a lot of cool stuff happening out there. Um, yeah, it's, that's, uh, that's really cool. I think like one of the issues that I have with hardware, um, just coming from someone who knows nothing about hardware is every kind of embedded system is different and you kind of have to read up on specs and all this documentation about every single new embedded system. So that's like another barrier to entry. Totally. Uh, yeah, even, I mean, what you said in, in, uh, as it applies to drones, like one of the, mm -hmm. one of the interesting things I did see a company was doing out there is building an abstraction layer. So like basically all these different models of drones that have all these different chipsets, it's this layer of software they've written to like translate all those calls. And so like, if you as a developer want to like build your app, for example, to control these drones, uh, you just, you, you learn that one API and just plug everything else into it, which is kind of cool. It's really cool. Yeah. Definitely, totally cool. Um, I have no idea about uh, hardware either. So I hope that makes you feel better, Jarno. Um, <laughs> but I do, there is something that Matt touched on and it's how you were doing some hardware at the beginning when you were young and when you went into college, they told, somebody told you, hey, you, maybe you should focus on software. But even after, after you graduated and you have your career and a family now, you're now experience, like, experimenting with drones and software, right? Because you have so many side projects that I'll probably ask you soon about. It, uh, one question that I always get when I speak at panels is, do you ever stop learning? No. The, the day I stop learning, uh, something I've told my wife before, the day I stop learning is when I'm dead. <laughs> She's like, I believe it. <laughs> um, here, if I have one piece of advice I would give to people, you know, my, my sort of two cents here is, don't ever stop learning. And, and I don't mean just about software. Um, I think a lot of times something I've noticed is software engineers tend to, they'll spend a lot of time like learning software, different APIs, different frameworks, what, what have you. But I think it's useful to learn about things outside of that, outside of tech. Um, I don't know if I can mention the Joe Rogan show here, but <laughs> one of the things I'm, I'm a huge fan of, you know, I don't agree with everything Joe Rogan says or thinks or does, but I'm very fond of his show. And the reason is he's, he's the kind of guy that has a lot of interest in a lot of different topics. And I, I kind of sort of relate to that. Um, I might have a conversation with somebody about food and then like 10 minutes later, I'll have a talk with someone else about software. Um, and then later I want to talk about robotics, but then later I want to talk about sailing as in sailing boats. 
uh, I'm big into airplanes and stuff as well. So it's like, uh, which kind of fits in with the drone theme, but it's, I think it's, it's good for people to have a very well-rounded understanding of a lot of things. And I don't generally get into politics with people. Um, I don't really have an interest so much. <laughs> I think a lot of politics today tends to be uh, sort of missing the point on, on, on all, you know, levels. It doesn't matter which party is, but uh, I am interested more in the deeper philosophical questions of like what affects a country as a whole uh, outside of political parties. And so having, having sort of a well-rounded understanding of the world in general and how things work and, and with a goal of, and this is a key thing I, I think is important for, for everyone. I think software engineers, especially uh, maybe we can talk about toxic people in tech at some point, but uh, you have what I would call sort of the stereotypical God complex that some software engineers have. And I've run into this and encountered it where they think, you know, I know Ruby and Rails perfectly well. I am the be all end all. And, you know, but they struggle with doing something as simple as filling out a application for an apartment. <laughs> um, or how to treat people with, with care and kindness. Um, and I, you know, I've run into that a bit, uh, unfortunately, some very severe cases of that where people who completely lack empathy. And I think that lack of empathy comes from their just general lack of awareness around uh, the world that they live in and the people they're around and how things they say affect people. Um, so that's, that's kind of a common theme for me is two things. One, keep learning. Uh, don't stop. Um, also, I found the more interests you get into and hobbies you develop, you start wanting to develop even more hobbies and interests. And there can be a point where you go, I don't have enough time this week to do all of these things. <laughs> uh, especially like earlier on in life, I think, uh, especially for young people, like you're still sort of like trying to figure out what it is you do and don't like. Um, and I've actually, I've had somebody, uh, some folks recently, uh, some folks who are a little bit younger than me have asked me like, you know, how do you get started on all these things? I don't know if I would like that. And it's like, here's how you, you know, you go try it. Just try everything. Um, that's my philosophy is I used to have my, say my philosophy is try everything once. Now I say try everything twice. And it actually stemmed from my visits to certain restaurants because I was like, I'd go there once just to try it. And then I didn't like it that time, but I'm going to go back one more time because it may have been inconsistent that day or, you know, they were having a bad day or whatever. And it's like, it's better, uh, sec time around. So anyway, I don't know. Uh, yeah, try things and see, see what you like folks out there might find they like hardware more and maybe you can find a niche. Like if you could start, you could start a whole IOT company. It's entirely possible. Um, what I've also noticed uh, for anyone out there who might be interested in starting a business is the more you get into these activities and you start having a, a better understanding of all kinds of different things, you might think they're disjointed at first, but I think the best business concepts like truly valuable business uh ideas and products have been a result of joining all those ideas together in different ways um which i think sort of touches a little bit on uh inclusion and diversity it's like you, you allow all these ideas to come together people from different backgrounds you know for me um when we talk about like diversity and inclusion a lot of people think of this in terms of of um you know gender or race but it's like, that's important, but it's also diversity of thought. It's diversity of ideas. And so like, you might have somebody who's classically more 
familiar with hardware or somebody who's familiar with a specific programming language, but then you bring, you know, kind of go, going into the programming language thing here, all the different wars about which language is the best. Uh, yes, I was into, to answer your question, Jimena, or, or your statement from earlier, I was really big into Haskell, still love it. But over time, I began to realize that, uh, you know, there, there are other ideas from other languages that have made me realize Haskell has certain deficiencies. And I think one of the biggest deficiencies there is uh, the learning curve to get into it for what you're trying to accomplish with it is high. And I kind of question now whether it's worth going through for a lot of people. Um, because, you know, language like Haskell took me over a year to understand. It's very different. Um, and so now I'm, I'm tinkering more with languages uh, like Scala and Kotlin and things like that. I, st I still do some stuff with Haskell. I'm also recently getting a little bit into Rust, um, which I think is the better answer to go. But anyway. <laughs> That's great. I think you're the second person uh, in my life who's talked about that restaurant tidbit where it's like you try <laughs> twice. Like you're the only other person that I've, I've um, heard say that. I think like when you talk about getting to languages, I think it's important to like try new things, like you said, and, and figure out like what will work for you. Cause you know, there's no one answer to anything. Um, and it's really easy to go down that rabbit hole of you just keep getting more and more things and you get like deeper and deeper into it. And then you find a community and you find people that like you talk to every day about it and it just becomes like it's whole world. Yes. Uh, totally, totally. I, uh, yeah, I, I think, you know, the language thing is interesting because um, some of those communities can get very much into their, and, and I think this goes back to the fact that they're not very open to other things. Some of these language communities get so uh, focused on their own paradigm that they kind of miss out on things that other languages have to offer. Um, if I'm allowed to deviate here, I want to give an example of something. Go for it. So one of the big things, uh, switching out of Ruby and Rails and going the Scala and Kotlin direction. Now, I, I had dealt with type systems before. You know, I did C and C++ programming years ago. Uh, I did C Sharp, and I've done some Java as well. But like kind of going the Ruby direction and then circling back again to strongly typed languages, um, I began to realize uh, towards the end of my Ruby part of my career, um, you know, the infamous Ruby guard clauses where it's like, I realized as I was looking at side-by-side -side code of things I was, I was experimenting with, like, oh, guard clauses are basically unnecessary in strongly typed languages because that's what the type system's for. <laughs> um, I mean, that's literally what you're doing, right? You're doing in Ruby, you're doing the is a string, is a number, whatever. And it's like, yeah, well, that's just, that's in the type signature for, for this other language. Um, the sheer amount of code I've been able to just like not have to write because of the type system is, is, is fascinating. And Scala's type system in particular uh, is pretty nuanced. Like there's a lot of cool stuff going on both in the Haskell and the Kotlin community, which uh, really grabbed my interest there. Um, you know, you have your, your typical type system that uh, most programmers are familiar with where you've got an integer, you've got a string, et cetera. Um, but in, languages like, uh, and they're not the only ones, but uh, to a large degree in Scala and Kotlin, there's this idea of uh, what I call refinement types. And the concept is I have a string, but I want to accept a string that is an email address. 
Now classically, right, you'd write some kind of validation function to check it. But the type system, you write a validation function that then gets injected and attached to the, a new type that you create. So you can, you can only store uh, a email formatted uh, string of characters in that uh, string field. So some of those concepts are interesting because then at compile time, you can actually check that everything conforms correctly before you ever roll your code out to, code out to production, which is, you know, and I'm not here to bash on Ruby. I love Ruby. I think there's a lot of cool stuff there. But, uh, and I think there are things that Ruby has that other languages like Scala and Kotlin could benefit from. Um, but there's, uh, there's, there's definitely a lot of duplication of code and things that you miss um, because you won't know about them until runtime. The thing goes out to production. You're like, oh, we forgot that. Or why are we passing cat instead of dog? You know, <laughs> um, and that's just stuff that you you catch early on in the loop with some of the strongly compiled languages. So, um, yeah. Anyway, uh, I think there's a lot of things languages can learn from each other, and I think this this idea uh, that a lot of language communities start to fall into their community too much and they don't keep a broader perspective is is a bit of a it's a bit of a problem uh i I just think more people need to break out and study other languages uh there's a couple of books and i can't remember off the top of my head exactly but it's something like uh 10 languages in 10 days or something like that um that i read once and it's literally the author goes through a bunch of different languages that you just kind of he kind of points out like the highlights of them and i think it's a pretty well-rounded book i'd recommend for any developers who are start, especially starting a career, even people who have been in their career for a while, read those books. It kind of gives you some perspective on things and helps you understand, obviously not just learn different languages, but also understand kind of the community thought behind those languages and how more and more of those ideas can start to merge together into the one language to rule them all. No, I don't know. <laughs> I do want to point that if you have a good QA team, Hopefully you catch that before it goes out to production, but <laughs> this is true. <laughs> yes. Uh, which is an interesting thing because there are companies. Ooh, this is a good point. I want to, want to dig into this, especially because we have a resident QA on hand. Um, I ran, I will not name the companies, but they are here in Chicago that I had interviewed in the past with. And, you know, I, I was asking them questions at this point in the interview and I was like, you know, how does your QA process go? Like, like, do you have a dedicated QA team? Do you have uh, a QA assigned to a dev team? Like, how does that work out? And he just kind of looks at me and goes, what are you talking about QA people? It's like, you know, people who verify that you did your job. And he's like, well, we just QA our own stuff. <laughs> I want to cry like, right now. I'm like yelling and screaming through the screen. How? How is this possible? I think I think a big part of it is, and I could tell with that company, there's a bit of ego at play there. Um, so my philosophy with QA is the following: I think you need QA. Uh, companies have tried getting away from that concept. Yeah, they've gone. They've tried a few, not all, and and in fact, I wouldn't even say many. But there have been a few companies who have experimented with this concept of devs just QA their own stuff. And there may be cases where you have to do that 
because of time constraints or you don't have a budget to hire a QA or you've got an open QA position or whatever. But in general, I think it's a good idea. And the reason is my philosophy about software is the same I have towards anything else in life, which is to apply the scientific method. And the scientific method, you go do something, you don't, you run an experiment, for example. You don't just say, okay, the experiment succeeded, we're done. It's like, no, that's, that's anecdote. It worked for you. That's great. But maybe you missed something. And so you pass it on to someone else who can review that to make sure it works. And so that whole concept of the scientific method where you have peer review and uh, you have someone to actually test and verify steps and make sure things work the way they're supposed to in all scenarios um, is important. And I think there is a, there is a problem where devs as they're writing software, uh, you, you can have a really smart dev. It could be super brilliant, right? Uh, awesome memory, whatever. You're still going to miss stuff. It, it's going to happen. You become sort of zoned in on the, trying to get the thing to work that you miss all of the other scenarios and edge cases um, that you should have caught. And that's what having a dedicated person. And I think someone who's good QA has to be really, uh, uh, really good sort of uh, set of mental skills to like try to not just make sure your thing works, but try to break it. Try to experiment. Yeah, you, you know this. <laughs> I know you know this. <laughs> exactly. The very famous line it works on my machine, right? Um, yes. It's something you touched on the ability to break things right there is for the current company that i work for we there's this part of the interview about um exploratory testing where they give you some time for you to try and break into the actual website for me i enjoyed that because i was like oh yes let me think about this let me think about that (laughs) and like the scenario and then i like i got so into it and they only gave me like 45 minutes and i wanted more right and that's something that I was passionate about. Um, another thing that you touched on uh, that is really important is like it helps you open as a developer, open your not like not just your ego, but your your skills, right? Because it, for me as a QA, I we we could collaborate and do like test checks or pair like instead of pair programming, I pair and look into what like how it's working, right? For me. It, it builds on that team and it, and it not only makes the QA or the dev better, but it makes a better team. And that not only helps us as employees for a company, but it also helps a company have good teams where people actually enjoy coming into work and spending some time, right? Not just like another day, oh, another ticket that I have to get across the board. It's more of like people that I actually enjoy working with, right? Because you never know, like in tech, especially in Chicago, and I imagine John or in Seattle, right? It's so it's such a small world that you will end up working with people that you work with at your very first job. Yeah, that is definitely true. Uh, I I like what you said about the uh, the team dynamic, having people that you enjoy working with. That is really crucial for me too. Um, I'm happy enough to be on a team right now that I'm really enjoying. We get along really well. And excuse me, I think one of the just sort of like 
mental and social cues that I look for is, you know, we get together and stand, we can, for the first like minute or two is everybody's connecting uh, to the call since we're under this pandemic right now, we can just uh, joke with each other, you know, just have a, a fun little time for a couple minutes. It's like, all right, guys, we need to get to stand. <laughs> um, that's, that is really important. And it's something, uh, you know, talking about, I'm going to go sort of on the negative side of this, talking about the, ex the extreme uh, toxic sides of how teams can get. Um, there, are, there are unfortunately people I've worked with uh, at previous companies where uh, there was a lot of toxic dysfunction. And it was, you know, from specific individuals, but uh, it really started to destroy team morale to the point where like other people on the team were coming to me and saying, hey, so-and-so behave this way towards me, or they were, uh, uh, they said that thing that seemed like a kind of a chip on the shoulder challenge, and it, it was a problem, and it, it was causing issues. Um, eventually, like, we start, you know, I, um, without getting too into to details or <laughs> identifying anything, um, you know, I had conversations myself with like management uh, as well as other people. And it was like, all right, maybe we should shift people around onto other teams to try to figure out what's going to work here. Um, but at the end of the day, like that helps remove some of the toxicity from the teams originally in question, but uh, it just ended up spreading around the company in other ways. Um, you know, and eventually like those people over time, hopefully will eventually get pushed out. But Toxic people are an interesting topic because uh, I'm, I'm sort of the kind of person who likes to fix all the things. And, you know, you, you try to reach out and I've tried to do this in the past with people uh, who are like this. Like you try to sit down and have conversations with them, try to talk to them, uh, what's going on. And sometimes you actually get uh, in a positive direction with folks. Sometimes it's like, Hey, I've got all this stuff going on at home. Uh, things are tough. Like, yeah, maybe I'm bringing too much of that into work. And you can have a simple conversation like, hey, do you need to take a week off? Go deal with, you know, whatever's going on in your personal life. Um, because, you know, different people are picking up on this vibe and it's kind of making it sour for everyone. Um, and, and by the way, uh, for companies out there who might be listening and have power to change things, try to be more understanding of your employees. They have personal lives, things that go on. I myself have had personal things in the past where it's like, I've got something unrelated to work that's bothering me and I really can't fully mentally be there. And it, and it starts to feel like I'm just sort of there. I got to get through the stay so I can go home and deal with whatever other thing I've got going on. Um, it could be family stuff, friends stuff, whatever that can be tough. And so I think uh, I'm a big fan of what, what I call mental health days where sometimes you just need a break to, let yourself recharge uh, and all of that. So I think, you know, that's sort of going on the, the extreme negative side of things um, with, with team dynamics. But I think that is something that is important to, to maintain is, is not just pairing the right people up, but like understanding that sometimes the reasons that people are toxic uh, or exhibit toxic behaviors because they're going through something. Um, now other people, they're just jerks. <laughs> And there's no solving that. costs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, you, you can't get around that, unfortunately. If, if people are just jerks, it's like, all right, this, you know, maybe this person needs uh, psychological help, uh, you know. And, and by the way, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Like some people do need help and we shouldn't stigmatize that. Um, 
but unfortunately at the end of the day, you are a business and you do have to focus on producing. And um, I think we should be flexible and understanding and try to work with folks. But there are, there are definitely cases where you have toxic individuals that are just not going to get better over time. Yeah. I think you touched on a really important part, a point, which is like empathy, like having empathy, dealing with people, just anyone in general, like toxic or non-toxic, right? Is always important, especially in a business, especially in a workplace. Um, I think you gave some really great tips on how to deal with toxic people coming from kind of more of like an experience, like, Hey, I've been here, but if you're a newer developer and you're just getting to this team and you're feeling this toxicity, like that's a challenge. Like, what would you kind of do to overcome that? Great question. Um, <clears throat> I would say, uh, I'm, I'm just thinking back here to my early days of my career. And I mean, I encountered toxic people in my first job uh it was mostly higher up there was like a couple of higher up people that were just like oh wow you are really full of yourself uh <laughs> i mean it was a case where like you sit in an architecture meeting and uh you know this, this individual would be like well i don't like the comma here or i think the period needs to be moved over there okay. and like they would nitpick and it was it was like this is so irrelevant to anything here it was just a way for this person to to demonstrate their authority and their knowledge, you know, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Um, for people starting out in their career, and I, I did not do this. I didn't know any better at the time. I just let it go. But I think, um, and I have a caveat to this that I'll add after, but I think for young people getting started, you know, you're, let's say you're fresh out of college, your, your first job, uh, Try as much as you can early on to develop a good relationship with your tech lead uh, and other peers that you'll be working with. Um, And I say this because establishing human connections with those people around you will get them to start thinking about things from an empathetic perspective. There's something about like putting us face to face with each other where you realize, oh, you're another person, not just a name on the email, you know that that helps um now i add a caveat to that because it may be that those people other people on the team are not the kind of people you want to get like involved with and i'm not saying you necessarily have to be buddy buddy friends with everyone um but uh at least have a good working relationship if you want to keep it strictly professional that's fine uh that being said um i i think you know just letting them know, Hey, I'm a human and I care about you. And hopefully you also care about me. Uh, and we all want to grow together and do this thing. Right. And, um, so I think establishing it early on is, is, is pretty important. And the re- another thing that will come out of that is when you encounter like that kind of higher level toxicity, the more and more people that you form good relationships with in that company, uh, the more likely they are to also see by contrast how that person is, is behaving. And uh, whether it be, you know, just collectively over time, that person will start to, by the reputation that they're creating for themselves, that person will start to get little by little pushed out of the company, hopefully. Uh, on the other hand, if all this doesn't work out and your team is full of nothing but toxic jerks, uh, it's time to find a new company. <laughs> I I want to be fairly honest. And I think that during my first job, because I, my career has a, a little bit of years, um, 
the first company that I was at, it was really bad where I was questioning my own sanity, right? I was like, am I even in the right place? What is happening? Like, maybe I'm not good enough. And the question kept coming into my head. But finding the tech lead at the time when I joined the team was what helped me understand like, uh-uh, it's not me. It's these people that are toxic, the people that I'm around that are creating this atmosphere. So I think that's really important to keep in mind because it's going to help you in in growing your your tech sales or whatever but also keeping your own sanity and thinking it's not me it's it's the environment and you're right sometimes getting out it's the best thing that you could do some people really do need that helping hand but some sometimes companies need to understand that they're not there to give it to them and they need to let that person go because it's affecting their their team and their team dynamic yeah. Uh, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. I, I ran across, um, so, uh, yeah, so you and I have had the, the, uh, happy fortune of being, uh, being able to work together in the past, uh, which is great. And I think one of the things I always liked about you, Jimena is, uh, you're super professional. Um, you're also very, uh, you know, warm hearted, towards people, which is, I, I think those are all great qualities. And when it came to your work, I noticed that you always pick things up quick and you paid attention and, and, and applied yourself. And I've, by contrast, worked with, again, other companies I won't mention where uh, somebody would ask you a question, how do I do X? And you're like, okay, well, here's the steps you need to go through. And then, at the risk of complaining too much, it, it was a situation where it was like, all right, I'm going to sit here every single time you need to do this and tell you how to use the command line or how to rename a file. Um, again, there's sort of like an initial level of, yeah, you're getting familiar with stuff and, and some people need more time than others. But what I'm talking about is more people who are unwilling to put any effort whatsoever into it. And they sort of see you as, and I've run into this a few too many times myself in the, in the past, fortunately not where I work right now, but there's this like, um, well, if I can get you to do it for me, then I don't need to do it myself mentality. And that's going to kill team productivity. Um, Oftentimes what I've seen is you'll have a team that's like that where a lot of the people on the team are like that. You'll have like one or two really uh, good folks that are like solid and they've got good skills and they pick stuff up and they learn it and apply it. And they just get inundated and overwhelmed by the constant request to go do somebody else's job for them. And it becomes very, very difficult. I have fallen into that myself where I've been handholding entire teams and it just stresses you out because you end up working more than 40 hours a week and you end up doing their work too. And, and inevitably that one person is not going to be able to do all that work. So you, the team ends up falling behind and hopefully you have support for management to correct this. But generally speaking, if you have a team that's formed that is that way already, I don't think you're going to get support from management to fix it because management ultimately at the end of the day is responsible for that team. And they have allowed that team to come together uh, in a less than optimal way. So good luck with that. <laughs> yeah, it's really rough. If you're working more than like 40 hours a week and you have like the burden of a whole team on your shoulders, that's a recipe for burnout. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I think like coming, if you were like a newer in Korea, early in Korea developer coming into kind of software engineering and kind of see these like hints of more than 40 hour work weeks, you know, hustle culture and all that stuff. Like, you know, what advice would you give to these developers? Uh, again, if, if you're uh, noticing this as a trend across the company, uh, get out, find, find another job and leave. Um, that being said, I, I do want to, I want to throw a couple of things in related to this as well. As far as I keep saying, get out if it's toxic, that's sometimes easier said than done. Uh, you might, you know, and I've seen, I've seen different things for different people. Like somebody might blast off 400 applications and get like two responses. Other people get companies reaching out to them constantly. Um, and I think one of the questions I've heard people ask me is like, how do I, uh, cause I probably, I don't know, between LinkedIn and a few other things, I probably get like, I think like around a hundred plus, uh, views, uh, like, I don't know, I get the emails like every day or a couple days or whatever from LinkedIn. And I probably each week have about between 10 and 20 companies reach out to me with like, Hey, we want you for this. Hey, we want you for this. Um, interestingly, most of them are Ruby on rails jobs and I'm just like, I'm not doing that anymore right now. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, if you're if you're starting out, and I, I, like I say, I keep uh, getting back to that point, uh, talking about leave. Um, it's it, it can be difficult to leave, and uh, the caveat I wanted to throw out. So there was a thing actually I saw recently on Twitter about this. Um, somebody had posted this statement of, uh, you know, best advice I can give anyone starting out in this industry is uh, don't have. Uh, you know, less than like a year or something like that. They were talking about like the whole, you may have seen this. I saw it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Really, yeah. And so the first thing I thought was I, I read this and I was like, okay. Cause I, I've had conversations about this with some other people as well. Um, including people who have been like CTOs at other companies and, uh, it, I don't think his statement was, uh, accurate. But I think there was a bit of truth to it, is what I'll say. Um, so other people came in there and responded, and I've I've seen some of those responses like, "Well, you're completely wrong. Like, you know, I've gone uh, and moved from a company every three or four months, and I'm doing just fine." Um, and it's like, okay, uh, so what is what is the truth? And I, I'm not I'm not the guy who has all the answers, but. Generally what I've seen, and I have a huge interest in psychology too, by the way. So I, I, I tend to like to look at this from that perspective. Um, what I would say is from my experience, most jobs you get, especially if you're entering in as a, let's say you're like going from junior to senior level. I think one of the things that folks in that transition period are going to have a hard time sort of coming to terms with is the sheer amount of complexity of things you have to deal with can, depending on the company can, and your product can drastically change. Um, I have seen people go uh, fairly recently, actually, I've seen some folks go from a junior position up to a senior role. And, you know, at the time I was kind of like, I kept it kind of to myself, but I was like, I don't know if you're, quite ready just yet uh 
you know, I wish it's like, you wish the best for them and you hope things turn out great. But, and, and, and I also, I need to throw this out there. I realize different companies have different meanings for the term senior and, and junior. On that note from junior and having some experience and knowing that we have to ask questions, I am in that phase of my career right now where I have some years under my belt. I have worked at companies that do Ruby, but some of my interests are Go, Java. I've also been doing a little bit of hacking myself with Linux, um, but I want to keep growing. I have that eager eagerness to keep learning. What would you say to people like me that are in the middle and we want to go to junior, to from junior to senior? Um, what is something that we could be actively doing without killing ourselves with 40 hours of work and then side projects and the podcast, like all these extra projects? Yeah, that's, uh, that's a, that's a difficult question to answer. Like I have some thoughts on this, but, um, There's, so I'm going to break this down into sort of two categories for my answer. The first is uh, the way that I wish things were ideally uh, for that career path. And the second is the sort of like stark reality uh, that we have to face right now. So in an ideal world, I would be uh, as a junior or intermediate level you know, however your company breaks that up, but you, you want to get to like a senior level. Uh, in an ideal world, uh, I actually think that assuming that the person in question is actually like interested, some people don't want to grow, right? And, and that's a whole nother question. But let's say you do want to grow. Uh, in an ideal world, I would say the company through its mentorship, and I think companies need to explicitly focus on developing good mentorship programs. This is not stuff that's going to always happen on its own. We'll, we'll get to the caveats of like reality as it is. Um, but in ideal world, your mentors should sit down and, and work with you um, to try to develop a couple of things, a couple of skill sets, broad skill sets that I think are sort of how I, at this point, sort of look at, at senior engineers. Um, the first skill set is obviously uh, technical aptitude, right? You don't necessarily have to know everything about every technical thing. You're not going to, I don't. Um, but have good, really it boils down to good troubleshooting and investi investigative skills. Um, if you don't know something, a demonstration, you know how to find that out. Um, whether it be asking the right people, back to asking the question saying, uh, or reading code. I mean, again, like there's, as a senior, you're going to be expected to have to sit down many times and just dig into code that nobody understands in your company. Uh, which leads into the second thing that I would say is important to develop. Um, and so, so as part of the first thing, I wanna say as a specific point to call out, being able to sort of work on your own. Let's say, you know, we should make use of our teammates if we can, we should try to learn from them, we should try to help speed things along in, in that sense. But for me, a defining characteristic for the, this first part is uh, a senior in theory would be somebody who could do a contract job on the side. Let's say you had your own side consulting business and uh, you don't have a team to go to, it's you. 
you can ask the company questions, refine requirements, those kinds of things. Uh, that's your client, but you have to go solve and figure those things out yourself and do it in a reasonable time frame. Um, so that's, that's kind of the key distinguishing factor there for me is like, if you're senior, uh, you have the technical and troubleshooting and investigative mindset to be able to, if you don't know stuff, figure it out enough on your own that you can go apply that and, and build the product and have it look professional. So that would be, that would be a sort of a first point. The second thing that this leads into, let's say you're on a team at a current company is the, and these are called different things, right? Sometimes companies call them soft skills. Um, I don't know that I like the term soft skills. It's fine. We can use it. Uh, I like to call it, it's just general leadership. And for me, leadership is not about uh, acting like you have authority. Leadership is, hey, I've learned a thing and I want to socialize this concept with you. So for example, let's say you go do that deep technical dive. You've spent time to dig through, uh, I don't know, 10,000 lines of code to figure out what's going on for something. You need to be able to write that well. Can you write technical documentation on that? You don't have to go crazy, but have a place like a central resource where you can go, what we do at my company is we have a wiki and we actually write stuff on our wiki. So it's like, hey, how does this work? I don't know. Let me go research. As I'm researching, I'm going to write up all of these points, steps, uh, you know, describing how to work each feature, what goes on under the hood, all that kind of stuff. So being able to, to communicate those ideas in the written word is important. Also, being able to have meetings. I cannot emphasize this enough. And this is something that I think a lot of software engineers struggle with. I think there's something personality wise about the type of person who typically not to, you know, too broadly, uh, uh, paint with too broad a brush here, but there is a tendency for a lot of software engineers to love to just, you know, work on code and tinker on code. Maybe they'll write some documentation, but we're human beings have a face to face conversation with people. I can't stress this enough because there's this term as you go further up in your career. And it's something I, I have to think about too for my, my own career. Visibility. Uh, it's a word that, you know, and I'll admit this, like it's something that classically, even to this day, I don't think this ever goes away. Visibility is an issue. It's an ongoing problem that you constantly have to get better at. Um, and there's no like end state where you're done. It's, it's a constant battle. Um, although you don't have to look at it as a battle, but basically the concept around visibility, because you'll hear this term, but then no one will explain to you what it means. It's like you go have a conversation with your boss and you're like, hey, we have this career ladder and I've done all five out of five things on this career ladder. What's the next level? How do I get there? Well, you need to do these next five things to get to the career ladder. Okay. What do those mean? Well, you know, and then they'll go into like a five or 10 or 15 minute monologue that you walk away from not knowing what was just said at all. You just feel like, wait, what? I don't understand. So when I, when I say this word, I'm going to give you what, what my two senses on how that really works. Uh, visibility, the way you want to get that Visibility really at the end of the day means people know you exist. 
and they have a general good positive outlook on your capability overall. Um, you sort of become the go-to uh, individual for those for those things. And now there's there's some caveats left to add to that. You don't always want to be the go-to for everything around that. And there's 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 a balance here. You kind of have to to play, but. You do, you do need to get yourself more well-known. And the reality is the way our human brains are wired, sending emails and DMs is not the way to establish visibility. It's not going to work. Maybe with a few people that you already know, that's great. You have an increased visibility. Let's keep in mind, visibility isn't increasing the amount of contact you have with one or two people. It's increasing the number of people you have contact with. And you want to do that in a sort of human classic, you know, social way. So giving talks is, is one such way. Um, another way, and, and this is something that, you know, I actually struggled a lot with earlier on in my career. Uh, when there's a meeting that comes up, ask questions, as I said before, but if you have things that don't make sense to you, don't be afraid to speak up. In fact, I have definitely noticed that the more time I spend asking questions and externalizing my thought process, what I'm thinking, what's confusing to me versus what I understand. Uh, sometimes I'll ask people, bear with me, let me repeat this to make sure I understand what's going on. The more time you spend, uh, you don't want to overpower the meeting. This is, this is the balance. But the more time you spend uh, having that actual vocal communication with people, the more your visibility is going gonna, is gonna to go up. Because another thing happens in our brains. We're all tired uh, during the day when we're in meetings. And we don't want to sit through yet another meeting. Um, so our brains will tend to tune a lot of things out. So you need to time your, your, the time you're speaking during the meeting. Uh, make sure you get people's attention. Which brings me to another point. How you talk in a meeting. Don't come across as aggressive and hostile. That's not going to work. Um, don't come across as the sort of stereotypical uh, tech person who's very monotone when they're talking. Um, prior to my, a lot of my jobs I had, I was actually part of Toastmasters. And part of that was learning how to speak publicly. And when you speak publicly, you might notice I tend to, when I speak, go up and I go down. I have a lot of inflections to how I talk. Um, some people might find that annoying, but most people in general, it helps engage your brain more so. If you hear a monotone speaker, you just tend to zone it out. And so learning to sort of like have a little more character and inflection to how you say things. in room. And again, it's a lot of little things like that that start to increase your connection with people in the room and the, the closer connected they feel to you, the more of a sort of dynamic speaker that you come across as um, is going to increase your visibility. It's going to get people to start to like you more uh, as long as you don't do it too far. Um, so there's, there's a bit of a social game to play there, but that's, that is a big part of going more and more senior up the ladder. Um, you might know all of the things the company does and you might, be really, really good and fast at getting things done. But if nobody knows that you exist, it doesn't matter. You're not going to get anywhere. Um, 
So definitely to increase visibility uh, to get to that next level. You just got to get, I think more and more, the more comfortable you are with just speaking in front of a group of people and sort of leading questions in a caring and empathetic way, uh, the better off you're going to be with going to that next level, assuming all the other stuff has been met. That was a lot. I really got long-winded there. Okay. (laughs) That's good. Great tips, man. Uh, Yeah, I think like visibility makes sense. Um, Yeah, but a lot of developers... I don't want to say a lot, but there's quite a few developers out there that are introverts and might yes. not, um, you know, want to do that or know how to do that. And some people, um, you know, I've seen in meetings will kind of think about a thought in, throughout the entire meeting without saying anything. And then right at the very end of the meeting, they'll say this like perfectly formed idea and you're just like, wow, that was beautiful. Um, but for those people, they might get drowned out by, um, you know, those more active engagement um, what do you kind of suggest for these like introverts? I, I know you mentioned Toastmasters. Is there any other resources? Yeah. So I'll, I'll start off by saying here, I was, uh, to the thing you, you mentioned about the type of people who will be quiet for like the first half of the meeting. And then, yeah, uh, that was actually something that was a category I fell into. My natural state was to be quiet. I, I've, I've always had this sort of, this sort of my psychology is like, I want to make sure I understand all the pieces and I get it right the first time. Um, which is a good thing and also a bad thing. Um, you can, you know, p- people don't notice you for the first like 90% of the meeting. It's something I've worked on. Uh, what I would say, uh, yeah, there's definitely Toastmasters is, is one thing. Uh, I would say also study other speakers who are well-known. Start to notice what they're doing. Uh, I actually think listening to good podcasts and when I say good, I mean, you can have great content, but like podcasts with like really interesting, I'm going to go back to Joe Rogan again here, uh, as you know, sort of like the well-known, uh, case of this Joe Rogan is, is he really gets in there with people. It's like asking questions like what's going on here. Help me understand. Um, and it's like, whether you agree with everything Joe Rogan thinks or not is irrelevant. Look at his style of communication. I think that's more engaging. Um, going to the point of giving talks, something I have actually veered away from more and more is giving a classic monologue talk where you're up there as a speaker talking. Uh, some of the talks that I've, the more recent talks I've started doing, I try to make it a little more engaging with the audience. Um, reach out to them, ask them questions. Uh, if, if you have time, let them raise their hands during the talk and, and ask those questions uh, mid, uh, mid-talk because you can get some interesting conversations going that way. And it's just that the moment somebody from going from speaker talking by uh, her or himself to now a member of the audience raises their hand because you told them they could, uh, you start talking back and forth. It helps the rest of the audience sort of like wake up as well. Um, you think about like meetup talks, they usually happen after work, which is like kind of the worst time to have a talk. Everybody's asleep. There's actually a study done. I can't remember the university. It might be Berkeley or MIT. I don't remember. Um, there is an AI researcher, a professor there who actually gave a talk about giving talks. And one of the things he pointed out is like, if you're going to give a talk or do any kind of like social active, more public engagement like that with people, um, time of day is very crucial and the perfect time of day is 11 a.m. because 
you've presumably already had breakfast or not if you don't really eat breakfast. I don't usually eat breakfast, but you're you're awake all the way, the whole audience. Uh, it's it's before lunch, but it's you know enough before lunch that like people aren't like they're starting to get hungry, but they're not super hungry. Uh, you don't want to do it after lunch or during lunch because uh, I have a pet peeve for people who do meetings over lunch. I'm eating. I'm on a call with you. I'm, I'm like, all right, I'm trying to eat my sandwich. I got my salad. And what was that you just said? I was focusing on the food. Uh, it, terrible time. Um, our brains too, when, when we're getting ready to eat, sort of goes back to that like primal hunt, hunter gather uh, sense. You're just like food here. I need to eat. Uh, so it's like, this is a terrible time to do it right after lunch. Equally probably worse than during lunch because now everybody wants to go to sleep. So terrible, terrible times. Any company like, and I've had this problem at every company. It's like you always get these lunch meetings and then you get the meeting right after lunch. And it's like, plus during lunch, right? A lot of software engineers, uh, at least, I don't know, this was a story for me in in Chicago, right? Pre-COVID, there was a time before the virus when people actually got together anyway. Uh, it's like you go have lunch and then everybody's got to rush back for that 1 PM meeting, right? It's a pain. Um, so terrible time to do meetings after work. You're exhausted. You want to go home. I don't know how many meetups I end up going to where people like go there and they have some beer and then they have some pizza and then they just kind of sit back in the chair and the speaker gets up and starts talking and I'm looking around the room and it's like, there are some people paying attention the rest of you look like you're on your couches right now at home, <laughs> myself included, um, which is unfortunate with the meetup situation. Actually, I think it was Eighth Light University that used to do meetups. Uh, I think it was during lunch, which again, not super great, but I, I think during lunch for a meetup like that might be better as far as your general alertness than like after work. Um, Anyway, just a thought. There's obviously traveling concerns and all of that and the typical hour-long lunch that you have that you have to worry about. But uh, yeah, so again, I'm getting way off topic here. I have a tendency to do that. Uh, but back to your question, like, yeah, look at other speakers, see what they're doing. Um, practice. Something I would do is actually, and I actually do this before I do my podcast sessions. I will sit down with my microphone. So right now I've got my headsets on so I can hear myself speaking. I can obviously hear you. Uh, I will prior to a podcast, especially if I'm getting somebody on who's like owner of a company or something like that. Uh, I will kind of like rehearse a little beforehand, sort of some of the questions I want to ask and how I want to phrase them. Um, so things like that, like practicing, you know, this is advice like other people have heard in, in, in various contexts, like you sort of get a you practice in front of a mirror type of thing. I think doing that, getting comfortable with the sound of your voice, getting comfortable with talking in front of people. Here's a key thing. Talk to your camera. It is scary. It is one of the best simulations of an audience you will have. If you get on your camera, like I'm talking, like I'm looking at you guys right here off screen, you know, in this session. If I turn right here and I look to the camera instead of you, I immediately feel a little bit of a sense of anxiety. Because I'm like, ooh, who's behind that camera? It's a thing your brain does. It just freaks out when you see camera. 
so talking that lens, so talk it to the lens. If you can talk more comfortably to the lens, you're going to be better off in, in public speaking. I, something has worked for me and I've seen this work for other people. Um, so yeah, l- little things like that. And yeah, if you can join Toastmasters, definitely do that. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really good just to get more comfortable with it. And I think over time you start to get more, more comfortable with just being in front of people. Uh, anyway, to answer right. your question, to answer your question yeah. about who's behind the camera, it's the FBI. <laughs> we all know that, right? <laughs> you are totally right. <laughs> uh, you touched on something really, really important, which is the meetups, which is um, meetings and reaching out to people and all of this, which is all the amazing things that come from tech. What are some cool projects that you're working on? Ah, I'm tinkering with a few things these days. Uh, in tech, um, I'm actually working on compiler stuff. So uh, both with Kotlin and Scala, I'm getting more and more into enhancing the languages, bringing more features, uh, syntax features and such into them. Um, I've, I've kind of been picking up on, I don't know, just to get like this compiler bug for the last couple of years. So uh, one thing of note there is for the Kotlin programming language, I'm actually bringing this feature called pattern matching. Um, and it's something I uh, have been fortunate enough to do with a company called 47 Degrees that uh, produces a functional programming library, uh, set of libraries for Kotlin. So I've been doing some of that. If anyone out there is interested in pitching in on uh, functional programming with Kotlin, uh, feel free to reach out either to me or uh, folks at 47 degrees. There's a lot of cool stuff going on there. Um, on uh, the Scala side of things, uh, I've been tinkering with kind of also with Kotlin, but on Scala, more, more advanced like type uh, programming stuff and uh, some stuff I was talking about with type systems, like trying to, trying to do some more things there. So Anyway, a lot of compiler stuff lately. And the second big thing I'm getting into now is I'm building my own uh, machine learning library, which is going to initially start out with Kotlin. I'm going to bridge it over to Scala and I haven't decided if I'm going to bridge it to another language beyond that, but we'll see. Um, But the basic idea behind this is you as the end user of that uh, library would not have to understand a thing about neural nets or backpropagation or any of the above. You would literally just tell it, I want to do audio recognition. Um, Here's a set of files I can learn audio words from, or you can just feed those words in individually and it'll learn from you uh, very quickly. And so you as a programmer don't really have to worry about all of the mechanics of ML. You can just tell it, Hey, here's a, here's a type of ML I want to do. Um, I want to do image recognition done um, without all the necessary plumbing and stuff. So that's a couple things I've been doing and I've been doing my podcast too. So trying to. That is, that is super exciting. You mentioned people reaching out to you, your podcast, where can people find you? Ah, well, uh, you've got my email address, uh, matt at mattmore.io, uh, which also is my website, mattmore.io. Uh, you can also reach out to me on Twitter. Uh, my handle, I believe, is at mattmore underscore io. I've tried to keep it consistent. 
Um, I do not remember what it is on LinkedIn, but search for Matt Moore in Chicago. You'll probably find me at Rally Health. Uh, I think that's it. Well, Matt, thank you so much. We have learned from, well, from functional programming all the way to psychological tips and tricks. It has been a great episode. I am super happy that you share your time with us tonight. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate this. This was absolutely awesome. Thanks, Matt.